Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. Bullets were flying everywhere, whizzing past heads, cracking into rocks, and slamming into the dirt with instant clouds of dust. The regimental sergeant major took a round in the leg, spinning into the ground. He grimaced, but exhorted his men on for a final assault. Fighter jets screamed overhead, their cannons blasting one last time before they left. Land Rovers bristling with machine guns and mortars surged forward in a modern-day cavalry charge, pouring fire on the frenzied defenders shrieking defiance. Some of the most elite troops in the world, the British SAS, had gathered en masse to take on crack Al-Qaeda terrorists, highly trained, heavily armed and fanatical to a fault. Those fanatics were guarding an opium factory and terrorist staging camp in Afghanistan, just 12 miles from the Pakistan border. Intelligence had indicated the Al-Qaeda militants' morale would be high, and it was. One SAS operator later said they fought like lunatics. But this was what he and the men around him were trained for. The SAS is probably the most renowned special forces unit in the world, and arguably the best. So the fight was on between Britain's finest and Al-Qaeda's hornet nest of extremists. Soon, men began to fall. Welcome to this, the largest concentration of SAS firepower since World War II, and the fourth episode of Secret Warfare, Operation Trent. When the United States was attacked on 9-11, Britain stood shoulder to shoulder with its ally. Joining the war in Afghanistan to remove Al-Qaeda's ability to train, recruit, plan and finance its terrorism, the British set their sights on an opium factory close to the Pakistan border. As Joel Grey and Liza Minnelli sang, money makes the world go round, and opium was a major contributor to Al-Qaeda's coffers. Taking it out would strip Bin Laden's terror organisation of tens of millions of dollars a year. The US wanted to simply blow the whole place back to hell with high explosives rained from the air. But British planners believed there would be a bounty of critical intelligence on the identities and locations of major enemy operations and senior Al-Qaeda men, possibly even Bin Laden himself. Convinced, the US agreed to provide close air support to a ground operation. But this opium factory was guarded by heavily armed, well-trained and fanatical militants with high morale and a low opinion of surrender. So, the top brass wanted this done with surgical precision by elite special forces, and top of the list was Britain's Special Air Service. The SAS is the oldest and most renowned of the world's special forces units. The regiment, as it's known, hit the world's headlines with the famous 1980 hostage rescue of the Iranian embassy siege in London. The world watched televised footage with bated breath as several black-clad operators abseiled through roofs and windows, killing five terrorists, taking the sixth into custody 
and freeing 19 hostages. In a fierce 17-minute firefight, the SAS operators took barely a scratch between them. Formed in the deserts of North Africa in 1941, the SAS was now called to the deserts of Afghanistan. But there was an issue from the start. Given the sheer multitude of targets in those early days of the invasion, there was only one small window when air support would be available. And that window was in just a few days' time and in the middle of the day. The SAS, like any military unit worth its salt, prefers to reconnoitre a target in detail before planning an assault. And the assault itself would usually be at night. But all the SAS had were maps whose smallest scale was 1 in 150,000, and the knowledge they would be attacking an elevated, fortified position in broad daylight without proper reconnaissance. Dangerous is not the word. Still, though, they accepted. After all, the SAS is driven by its motto, Who dares, wins. The first job was to scout, secure and mark out a temporary landing zone for six huge Hercules aircraft that would be bringing in the bulk of the SAS men and their vehicles. To do that, an initial eight-man squad from the regiment's air troop was selected for this first hazardous assignment. One of the main weapons the British would bring to bear was surprise. It was essential that Al-Qaeda have no idea they were coming until the last moment, and to do that would require something special. Air Troop are the free-fall parachuting specialists of the SAS, and the eight-man team performed the regiment's first ever halo insertion into enemy territory, the night before the main attack. A halo insertion involves jumping from a high-altitude aircraft and free-falling nearly all the way to the ground, only opening your parachute at the last possible moment. High altitude, low opening. You can see a halo jump in the Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies, although being a movie, it portrays the opening a little too low for reality. Bond would have slammed into the sea like a pancake on concrete. But I digress. During a halo jump from 35,000 feet, the operators would have had to endure temperatures of minus 45 degrees centigrade, or minus 50 Fahrenheit. They would fall head down at speeds of up to 180 miles per hour, and face the dangers of hypoxia, which is when the body is deprived of enough oxygen. Jumpers do wear oxygen masks on their rapid ascent in the aircraft, and in their precipitous descent on the freefall. But they have to switch masks prior to jumping. Any issues with that switch or with the oxygen bottles themselves can lead to rapid hypoxia or even the bends, where too much nitrogen enters the bloodstream. In either case, the operator can lose consciousness during the fall and fail to open his parachute, with obvious, devastating results. But the risks are worth the reward. Jumping from high altitude makes you nearly invisible to ground observers, and opening your parachute at the last minute 
reduces that risk in the final moments. So on a dark night in November 2001, Air Troop cleaved the night sky, speeding towards the Earth like peregrine falcons. There was almost zero chance of anyone spotting the men hurtling through the air, clothed all in black. Their only sound was the quick crack of their opening parachutes. Hitting the ground, Air Troop quickly formed a defensive perimeter and waited. If anyone had seen or heard something they wanted to check out, now would be the time. But the halo insertion had worked like a charm, and Air Troop got to work. One part of the team marked out the landing strip, while the other kept watch from a concealed observation post. Now, around dawn, the six enormous Hercules aircraft flew in fast and low, and before they could even come to a stop on the improvised runway, their ramps were down, and SAS Land Rovers and motorbikes came racing out to form their own defensive perimeter in seconds. Just moments later, the Hercules roared back into the sky, and two full squadrons of SAS operators moved at speed to a forming up point. Most of the men rode in the Land Rovers, known as Pinkies, which were bristling with heavy weaponry. The SAS has been known to mount a full three 7.62mm general-purpose machine guns on a single pinky, along with American-made 50 caliber heavy machine guns and automatic, belt-fed MK-19 grenade launchers. The MK-19s are a particular favourite of the SAS, as they can spit out one 40mm grenade every second to targets over one and a half kilometres away. The sheer suppressive fire of these mounted heavy weapons is phenomenal. The two SAS squadrons involved that day were A and G, accounting for a full half of the regiment. G squadron took up standoff positions in a fire support base, and prepared to bring massive suppressive fire down on Al-Qaeda from medium range. A Squadron, meanwhile, would provide the assault force, and moved quietly to their start lines. Up to 140 elite SAS operators, the largest concentration of British Special Forces firepower since World War II, were about to face off against a hundred fanatical Al-Qaeda militants, armed to the teeth and more than happy to die for their cause. At around 11 in the morning, the SAS gave them their opportunity. A squadron suddenly roared forward in their pinkies and motorbikes, their plumes of dust alerting the militants who scrambled to trenches and bunkers. The two sides poured fire at one another as the British closed at breakneck speed. RPGs and heavy machine gun fire peppered the air, spitting into the ground and ricocheting from the Land Rovers, while the SAS Pinkies emptied their machine gun magazines in reply. Just a few hundred metres away, A Squadron dismounted and moved forward on foot in two-man teams, leapfrogging each other in a manoeuvre called pepper potting. G Squadron rained death from a distance, as their 50 cows and grenade launchers opened up an intense barrage, pounding bunkers, trenches and flesh. 
elite SES snipers joined the action, picking off targets and accounting for many of the kills. Even the hardened hearts of the Al-Qaeda militants must have skipped a beat, as now simultaneous airstrikes from US F-18 Hornets screamed in from the sky. Their missiles destroyed 50 million pounds worth of opium, hammered bunkers and trenches, and they flew repeated sorties until they ran out of things to fire. The noise was a cacophony of automatic rifle fire and machine gun ferocity. The screeches of jet engines, the screaming shouts of orders and pain, the relentless eruptions of bombs, missiles, RPGs and grenades. Just as the American jets were about to leave, an F-18 took a final pass on the compound, strafing a bunker with its 20mm Vulcan cannon. But closing in on that bunker, just metres away, were several SAS operators. A disastrous blue-on-blue incident was only narrowly avoided when the operators scrambled aside. Still though, several enemy bunkers were now smoking ruins thanks to the F-18s. Many, however, remained. The firefight was ferocious as A Squadron closed on the fortified positions. Despite the onslaught, the defence was relentless, defiant and frenzied. One SAS man was suddenly shot and wounded as he ran to cover and was now dragged back by two others. Others were shot too and only saved by their ceramic armour and tactical helmets. From G Squadron's position at the fire support base, it looked as if the assault was stalling and this is when the regimental sergeant major ordered his men in to support the main attack. Just as the pinkies roared forward, the sergeant was shot in the leg by an AK-47. But despite the withering fire, A Squadron pressed on with the support of the cavalry charge of G Squadron. Several of the heavy weapons and snipers had remained behind and continued battering Al-Qaeda with everything they had, and now the assault managed to penetrate the front line of the enemy base. One operator described the fighting as something akin to the First World War, with Al-Qaeda militants now running out into the open, firing at anything that looked remotely British. He went on, If they had a breath left in them, they'd be trying to shoot you, so we had no choice but to kill. It essentially descended into an ugly gunslinging match as more and more fighters emerged from caves and buildings, rushing forward screaming, and pouring heavy fire on the SAS assault force with AK-47s, RPGs and small arms. Within just a few minutes though, most of them were taken out by the snipers of G Squadron. After nearly four hours of vicious fighting, the last resistance was finally mopped up as the SAS went cave to cave, clearing them out. Once the last shot rang, SAS men everywhere paused to catch their breath and consider the magnitude of what they had accomplished. They had suffered just four wounded, but killed up to 73 Al-Qaeda militants in the process. Inside the headquarters building, they took an intelligence bounty in the form of two laptops and a horde of documents. Although their significance has never been released, it's thought to have been highly valuable in the ongoing war 
and the removal of the facility to Al-Qaeda's money-making machine was immensely damaging to their abilities to fund terrorism. For the SAS, usually a secretive and low-profile unit engaged in covert operations, this ambush and destruction of a terrorist stronghold displayed again their status as one of the world's most elite special forces. Join us next time as we look deeper into why the SAS was in Afghanistan in the first place. Afghanistan was being used as a safe haven for Al-Qaeda to train, fund and plan its heinous crimes. And in the wake of 9-11, that had to stop. Dismantling Al-Qaeda was the main aim of the United States' so-called War on Terror. But what the US and its people wanted most of all was its head. The architect of the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon and the tragically doomed aircraft. We look at the largest manhunt the world has ever seen and how the West's foremost spy agencies teamed up with fearsome special forces and local informants to spend a decade locating the head of Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.